it's not every day you get a round of applause, which is nice because I am more at home in front of like, even a warehouse full of teenagers would be fine. Um, but this is not my normal spot. Um, nevertheless, I am really pleased to be here. The reading for today is from Joshua chapter 3. And before we read it, I'm going to give some background to the story. But if you want to find it, it's page 217. And then also, you can bookmark Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is page 187, because we're going to flip there at one point as well. But this is the thing about the Old Testament. Often, at least if you grew up in church, you were taught the stories as you know, standalone stories, or it's hard to connect them. And if you didn't grow up in church, chances are that you've missed the big picture anyway. So as quickly as I can, I'm going to whistle through the big picture of the story that builds to this moment, because when we see the big picture, it's easier to see how God is at work and what he's doing. So I'm going to start with Abraham and Sarah, who were Abram and Sarai, and then their names got changed. And they're an older couple. They were an older couple who had no children. Um, They were childless. And God comes and he makes a promise to Abraham. And he says, one day your descendants are going to be as many as the stars. Like your family is going to be huge, promise number one. Promise number two, I'm going to give them a land to call their own. And promise number three, out of your family, from your line will come a blessing that is not just for God's people, but is for the whole world, all nations. So God makes that promise to this older couple who were childless. And they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait and no child is born. And so Abraham takes it into his own hands and he sleeps with um, the maidservant of his wife and Ishmael is born. And God says, no, that was not what I promised you. That was not the story. And so Ishmael was born, and um, Abraham and Sarah wait again, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and then Isaac is born. And Isaac, this little baby boy, is the fulfillment, like miracle baby, the fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham. And then you have the really famous story, if you grew up in church, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And when you realize the story of how Isaac came to be, that's the story of him being asked to sacrifice him takes on a whole other level, right? And God never intended that Abraham actually would sacrifice Isaac. But that was like a story that was foreshadowing what God himself was going to do when his own son was sacrificed for us. So that story plays out. And Isaac lives, and Isaac grows up, and he has two children. And they're Jacob and Esau. Then Jacob, one of his sons, has got 12 sons. And this is like the most famous story in the Bible because it's like Joseph in his technicolor dream coat, right? So Joseph is the second youngest of these 12 brothers. But the 12 brothers are going to become the 12 tribes of the people of God, the nation that's going to become Israel. So famous story of Joseph. He doesn't really get on with his brothers. Um, They plan to kill him. They change their mind, but they stage his death. So his dad thinks he's died, and he ends up in Egypt as a slave. And then, um, whole long story, but basically, uh, Joseph is set up again. He ends up in prison, and in prison, God gives him the supernatural ability to interpret dreams. And he finds himself in a situation where... 
uh, Pharaoh has a dream, and Joseph is the one who knows what God is trying to say through it. And the dream that I'm talking about especially is the one of the seven years of plenty in Egypt. There's going to be like plenty in terms of crop, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And because they know what's going to happen, because God has spoken and he's given an interpretation, they are able to prepare. And Joseph is elevated to this position of huge authority, and he's in charge, and they stockpile in the years of plenty. They gather, and they save, and they stockpile. And then the years of famine hit, and the only people who have any provision are the Egyptians, right? So everybody else travels to Egypt because they need food to live. And amongst those who travel to Egypt are Joseph's family. And then you have this story of reconciliation, amazing story between Joseph and his brothers. And because Joseph has got so much authority, he's able to give them land where they can settle. And so the 12 brothers end up, the family end up settling in Egypt, and they make that their home, and they live there for generations. Genesis, first book of the Bible, ends with Joseph about to die, and he says to his family, I'm about to die, but surely you are not going to stay here. It's like the last few verses. You are not going to stay here because God will be faithful to his promise to give you his, your own land. They start Exodus, and um, the Pharaoh, who really liked Joseph and looked on him favorably, he's long since gone, and there's new leadership, and they are threatened by the people of God living in Egypt because they're becoming so numerous. There are so many of them, right? And they're threatened that they're going to become... like more powerful and take over and so they oppress them in the most horrific ways the most horrific ways as in like murdering babies oppression and so God says enough is enough it is time to implement my plan to rescue my people and to give them the land that I promised them and God raises up Moses and then you get those really famous stories of the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and God um, orchestrates It's this miraculous evacuation out of slavery um, and heading towards the promised land. They arrive on the edge of the promised land and you get the story of the 12 spies who are sent out to scout the land. And every single one of them come back and they say, the land is so good. It is everything that God said it would be. But also, the enemies who live there are giants and we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. And 10 of them are too terrified to proceed and then Caleb and Joshua say but God promised it to us but God promised it to us and they say in fact it says that Caleb silences them like stop it shut up this is what God has promised for us but they won't listen to them and so they petition them um, Joshua and Caleb but no no deal right and so God sends all of the people, all of his people, back into the wilderness. And they're there for about 40 years, roughly, um, living kind of in no man's land. And then we pick up the story now, Joshua chapter 3. And God has just said in chapter 1, he says, it is time now, after all these years, this whole story has played out. Now is the time for you to go and take possession of the land that I have promised for you and we are going to read what happens, Joshua chapter 3, which is page 217. I hope you found it. Um, So it says this, Early in the morning, Joshua and all of the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. 
After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of your God, so that represents God's presence with them. We don't have that anymore, but that's what that's about. And the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and they went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel, so that you may know that I am am with you as I was with Moses. So Moses has died, by the way. Joshua has taken over leadership, just in case you missed that. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hiveites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord and the Lord, uh, the Lord of all the earth set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in the flood. Uh, now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the edge of the water, the water from the upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarenath, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabath, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. We're going to read to the end of verse 7, chapter 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stayed tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. The first thing that I wanted to share with you was that the promised land was for 
all of God's people, right? So if you have a look in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, it says, verse 17, um, the priest stood there on dry ground until all of Israel had crossed over. And then chapter 4 says, now the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Back when the 12 spies go out and Joshua and Caleb say, like, come on, let's go. I wonder whether there was ever a temptation for them to go on their own, like for the people of God to split. Come on, let's go. They were right after all. But God intended that all of his people would enter the promised land. And the reason that that is relevant is because there is no spiritual hierarchy for the people of God. We are the people of God. And God fully intends that every single one of us would live as citizens of heaven in the kingdom of God. And there is no spiritual hierarchy that some would come in and others wouldn't. Some would live with authority and others wouldn't. Some would live with blessing and others wouldn't. That isn't the story. In fact, so much so that Joshua and Caleb walked amongst the people for 40 years so that when the time came, everybody crossed over into the promised land. The invitation of Jesus to live as people of the kingdom of God with Jesus as king and to see heaven on earth is for every single one of us and there is no spiritual hierarchy in this room. Having said that, there's this really interesting thing where the first time that the sea splits, so when they cross the Dead Sea when they're escaping Egypt, escaping slavery, they stand on the edge of the water, right? And Moses says, "Um, you don't need to be afraid. You need only stand still because the Lord is going to fight for you. In other words, do nothing and watch it happen. But this time, when it's time to take possession of the promised land, this time they have to go and stand in the river, the priests do, and they have to get their feet wet. And I was thinking about the parallel parallel in our lives, because when we're rescued out of sin, we do nothing. We do nothing. Jesus has done it all. We're not joining in with the work of the cross. It's done. It's finished. He's done it all. You need only stand still. Jesus will fight for you, and he will buy your freedom at the greatest cost. But when it comes to taking possession of all that Jesus won for us, then we have to be proactive. Then we have to join in with what Jesus asks us to do. The way that we do that, I'm just wondering, well, let me, okay, I'm I'm a bit worried that I'm going to go too long. (laughs) Let me just quickly point out in Joshua 1, it talks about the promised land as a place where God will give you rest. So if you look at uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 13 and verse 15, it's a place where the Lord will give you rest. And for us, the things of the kingdom of God are a place where we're at rest and we're at peace. And the wilderness was never, ever, ever meant to be a place where they were going to settle. In fact, it's described as a um, like treacherous land, um, a thirsty place with no water, a place with venomous snakes and scorpions. They were never meant to settle or to live long term there, although God was with them. Um, they were meant to enter into a place of rest. And when we're rescued out of sin, I just wonder whether we spend a bit too much time settled in the wilderness where God is with us. He is with us. And he demonstrates his power and provision. But it's not meant to be where we settle. It's actually quite a dangerous place for followers of Jesus to settle. Um, we're meant to take possession of all that he's given to us. So the second thing I wanted to say, and it helps us work out how we do that, how we take possession, is that 
Um, what was in front of the Israelites was a giant river, which it goes to great lengths to explain that it was like the worst time to cross. Um, verse 15, it says the Jordan is in flood. So it's not like it's a dried up river. It probably could not have been a worse time. And interestingly, the list of enemies, I might be reading too much into this, but the list of enemies in verse 10, there are seven enemies that are listed. When they first buy the land, the 12 spies goes out, they only list five enemies. I don't know if it's significant or not, but the the obstacles in front of them are big obstacles, and it would be tempting to tackle them as practical problems. But it isn't a practical problem, it's a spiritual problem. And the reason that it's a spiritual problem is because it stands in between um, God's people and the promises of God for them. And so the way that you deal with a spiritual problem is in a spiritual way. And this is what Joshua says to the people, and this is what I think Jesus is saying to us about some of the problems in our lives. So number one, um, in verse um, 3, chapter 3, verse 3, is when he starts talking about the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God going ahead of you. That is the presence of God amongst his people. And the spiritual answer to some of the things that look like practical problems in our lives is to go after the presence of Jesus. The New Testament says, fix your eyes on Jesus. The ark was sent out far enough ahead of them that they could see it the whole time, right? Don't take your eyes off God's presence amongst you. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't. Take your eyes off Jesus. Intimacy with Jesus is the beginning of the answer to all of the problems that we face in our lives, um, even the ones that look like giant practical problems. Number two, it says, consecrate yourself. So that's verse five. Joshua says, consecrate yourself. In our prayer meeting before the service, the word that like God brought to mind was purity. Be pure, be holy. So we think about like what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And some people are really good at going after the heart of God. Like me and Jesus, we're best friends. And I pour out my heart to him and I love him, but little regard for holiness. And then you get other people with a huge regard for holiness. Um, people maybe who like black and white things, live this way, do this, do this, do that. But miss like the intimacy with Jesus. And Jesus says, love and obedience go hand in hand. Love and obedience always go hand in hand, right? So don't take your eyes off Jesus. This is the way that we tackle the problems in our lives. Do not take your eyes off Jesus, not for a moment. Do not let his presence escape your point of view, but also set yourself apart as holy. Be pure. Pursue obedience. Be so uncompromising in wanting to look like Jesus. Because in my experience, the way he leads us is usually to do with the way that he um, like nurtures us as people to become more like Jesus and to fall more in love with him. And then we just find ourselves on the right path rather than like divine strategy after divine strategy. But also the third thing is there is an act of faith. They do have to step out. And the thing that I wondered whether God was speaking through with this bit is that not everybody got their feet wet. A few people had to get their feet wet for the sake of everybody else entering into the promised land. 99 point whatever percent of them crossed over on dry land, but a few had to go into the water first and get their feet wet and stand in the river. 
And it's true of the people of God today as well. We need people who will go out ahead of us in risky faith and set an example. Not This is basically a picture of leadership, right? It's not to be like the first one to enter the promised land. They were the last ones to enter the promised land because they stood there while everybody else crossed over and then they followed. Are you one of those people? Joshua 1 says again and again and again, it's to Joshua, but um, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. It's a brave and it's not an easy thing to be one of those people. And it doesn't mean that you have to work in the church, but God really wants to raise up people for the sake of all of us entering into the promises of God. And maybe you're one of those people that he's talking to. And like, would you please, so that we can all come, would you please? The final thing... Um, is remembering. That's why I just included the end of chapter four, right? Because, I mean, today the whole thing about remembrance, the reason we have Remembrance Day every single year is because we know that we're really quick to forget, really quick to forget. And even something as huge as somebody giving their lives, dying for our freedom, we are quick to forget. And that is true of the people of God as well. We are so quick to forget. So when they're in the wilderness, right, the first time after they crossed, um, when the Red Sea opened and they crossed, and they were there for a long time after the spies, they forgot, probably because they were never meant to settle in the wilderness. It's a dangerous place to settle. But so much so that they actually wanted to go back to slavery, I don't know whether they lost sight of the promises first or God's provision and his presence first. I don't know. But so much so that they actually wanted to go back to slavery. It's very dangerous to forget, very dangerous to settle in the wilderness, and very dangerous to forget. But just have a quick look if you've got it bookmarked at Deuteronomy 8 with me because it's not just in the hard times that we forget. And I thought this was really interesting. So I'm going to read from verse 11. Um, I'm nearly finished. I won't be, I won't be much longer. Um, verse 11 to the end of verse 18. So verse 11 starts, Deuteronomy 8. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and you are satisfied, this is, you know you enter the promised land, right? You eat and you're satisfied. You're not in the wilderness anymore. When you build fine houses and you settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and your gold, increases and all that you have is multiplied then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery he led you through this through it was always meant to be through through this vast and dreadful wilderness that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and its scorpions He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna every single day so that you had something to eat, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. And then you might actually say to yourself, wow, my power and my strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Um, But remember that the Lord your God is the one who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to his ancestors as it is today. In other words, we're as at danger of forgetting when things are going well as when things are going badly. And actually in the middle of our stewardship series where we slightly pause for Remembrance Day, it's, it's quite like um, plain language, isn't it? Like when things are going well, how easy it is to forget everything that God has done for you. And so I just thought I'd finish with um, 
like a little outworking of some of these things in my life in case it's helpful because in some ways I have talked a little bit in abstract terms rather than practical terms but um, some of you will know that I'm a mum I've got a seven-year-old a five-year-old and two-year-old and then I'm also on the staff team here at All Saints and if you know me you know that I am not a half-hearted person I never have been I'm like wholehearted in everything and um I see my family and I want to do the best for them and I see ministry and I see the children who come into this church and I see the young people who come into this church and I want to be uncompromising in what we do to point them to Jesus, totally uncompromising, but find it really hard. I find, the honest truth is that I find the juggle really hard, like I'm permanently out of my depth and um, a year ago, I built a little safety net for myself, right? And I just started saying to myself, if it gets too hard, I'll just walk away. If it gets too hard, I'll just walk away. Spiritual problem, practical solution, right? If it gets too hard, I'll just walk away. And I heard God say to me really clearly, Fiona, I did not move mountains for you to walk away. I did not move mountains for you to walk away. Who do you think you are? The reason that you're in ministry is because I've asked you to be here. It's a spiritual problem that is standing between you and the things of God. And you're trying to deal with it with a practical safety net that I'll just take one of the problems out. It's a spiritual problem that needs me to go after with my, the heart of Jesus, with my eyes on him that needs me to be set apart in holiness, to say, okay, God, whatever it is, to take like leaps of faith every single flipping day, every single flipping day, steps of faith. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'll just keep showing up. Now, the moving mountains was not like... Jesus wasn't talking, when he said that to me, he's not talking about molehills. He has literally moved mountains for me to be in ministry. And I don't really know why, but for some reason, like my role as a servant in ministry has been um, like fiercely attacked time and time and time again. And God has moved mountains to keep me in ministry. So how come I'm so quick to forget that the juggle of my time day to day, like that he couldn't handle that when he's moved, the mountains he's moved, you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't believe he would because we're people of God and we believe in the things of God, but they are extraordinary, bordering on miraculous, the things that he's done. And yet I'm so quick to forget. So I'd like to invite the band up and we're going to have an opportunity um, to pray. So if you're able, will you stand with me? I think I talked for quite a long time, and if I did, I apologize for that. <laughs> Take a breath. We're okay. All right. We're okay. Um, I'll tell you what it is. Teenagers can't concentrate for more than 10, 15 minutes. So that's my, you know, like, I, now, nowadays, I actually set a timer on my watch, 15 minutes, and I tell them, you set a timer too, because if I put a deadline, they can concentrate. If I don't, they can't. So that's probably why it feels long. Anyway, um, here we are. And the thing is that our faith is not theory, is it? And so let's just take a moment and let's be still and let's allow the Holy Spirit, um, I don't know, to keep turning over those things that I am convinced that he's already begun to turn over.
Thank you, God, that you're with us and you're among us. And we fix our eyes on Jesus again. I don't think life is ever going to be without its obstacles. The New Testament says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the like, powers and the principalities of this dark world. And there will always be obstacles that stand between, uh, at least until Jesus comes and heaven is like fully on earth. But for now, while we live in this in-between, there will always be obstacles that come between the people of God and the promises of God, the things of the kingdom of God. We sang about them earlier. And I think today is an opportunity for us to um, fix our eyes back on Jesus and to come to him for spiritual solutions. Some of them may be miraculous. Spiritual solutions. I also think that God may be talking to some of us about being people who get our feet wet, who take the first step of faith, who move into the treacherous space in order that the rest of the people of God would be able to move into the fullness of the kingdom of God. The thing is, you cannot do that on your own. The level of strength and courage it requires comes only from the Holy Spirit. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward so that we can pray. We can pray that the Holy Spirit would fill you with a courage, a bravery, a strength that can only come from him. one other thing this phrase comes I think it's verse 5 but um, God says I'm going to take you places that you've never been before our lives are not linear we don't just like cross the promised land once there's these like threads and strands and in some places maybe you're living in the promises of God and other places you aren't but there's always deeper to go and Jesus says I'm going to take you to places that you've never been before Are you willing to come? So prayer ministry team, maybe you could start moving to the front. And as you do, anybody who wants to be prayed for, will you come? We would love to pray. We would love to pray for you. So you can come just even as the um, ministry team come to the front at the moment. And together we're going to fix that. You can come. Yeah, just come. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're going to pray for each other.